The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, A Church for the City. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, and Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 through 17. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And so I just uh, thank you for worshiping with us this morning. And I've got uh, one more thing to do. Before I jump into the sermon this morning, I need to update you a little bit on our residency programs. Uh, One of the things that makes us a little unique as a church is that we are committed to raising up future pastors, future church planters, and future leaders for gospel ministry. We liken our ministry here at Sacred City as a t- like a teaching hospital. A teaching hospital is a hospital for patients, but it's also a training ground for future healthcare professionals. Um, thankfully, we've learned through human history that you don't train doctors through books, just through books, right? You actually make them have hands-on experience before you just give them the scalpel, right? Uh, Well, the same is true for 
uh, ministry leaders. Ministry leaders need more than seminary. They need hands-on discipleship and training in the real trenches of real and everyday normal life. This is where everyday gospel ministry is learned. So to that end, we have developed a formal pastoral and church planting residency. And a residency is that is completely customized to each individual, where we assess their strengths and weaknesses, we discern or help them discern their spiritual gifts and their calling, and then we train and equip them for future gospel ministry. Now, because of the customizable nature of this program, there are a lot of things that are hard to define. People ask me all the time, well, how long is it? Well, that totally depends upon the resident. A residency could be anywhere from six months to two years, depending on the resident's experience. One of our past residents, Sam Schmidt, did a pastoral residency for two years, and then we affirmed that he's called to ministry, and then he said, you know what, I feel called to church planting, and then he did another residency for another two years, and we uh, got him into the church planting program, and he planted Sacred City Moline with Acts 29. So people ask me, will each resident plant a church when it's over? No, they won't. First, the pastoral and church planting residency, they're similar, but they're different. They're distinct. Um, the skills needed to plant a church are a little bit different than the skills needed to simply pastor. Secondly, a residency is not the same thing as a factory. I wish you made disciples the same way John Deere makes tractors, but it just doesn't work that way, right? We can't just put a, any person in at the beginning and then hope that after the end of the conveyor belt of the residency, out pops a disciple or a church planter or a pastor, but that's not how it works. Some residents will discover that they actually aren't called to full-time ministry. That's okay. That's part of the process. They'll be more equipped to be a minister in their everyday life, no matter what career they choose. We want to help them discern their call to ministry. Some residents will have the gifts needed to pastor in some fashion, but won't have the gifts necessary to start a new church. That's okay too. Think of pastors and church planters as two different positions on a football team. The gifts, talents, and abilities needed to be a quarterback are a lot different than what's going to be needed to be a center, right? If you're 6'5", 200 pounds, you're never going to be a good center in the NFL, probably, most likely, right? And if you're 6'5", and 350, you're probably not going to be a QB, right? Well, the same is true for church planters and pastors, most church planters are going to have to have a unique combination of natural gifts and talents that are unique to that position. A church planter needs to be a good visionary, good communicator. They need to be a self-starter and have some kind of entrepreneurial bent if they're going to be able to pioneer a brand new work for God. On top of that, they're going to be able to preach the word. They're going to have to be able to shepherd souls and lead leaders. So one of the goals of our residency is to help each individual discover their unique calling and position that God has designed them to play. Whether that's kids ministry, youth ministry, counseling, executive ministry, or church planting. 
And this year we have had um, five men apply for the residency and we've accepted three into our pastoral residency program. Uh, We haven't accepted anyone into our church planting program yet, um, but I'd like these men that we've accepted into the pastoral residency to please uh, stand up with your family so we can pray for you as you begin this process. So Alex Tate, is he even here? Where's he at? There he is back there. I'm like, he's a spot. He's not here in a spot. All right, he's standing back there. All right, um, we got Kevin Noah and Bryson Amex here. And who is his wife? I saw Bryson over here. Kevin, I don't know. There they are. All right, there he is. Family, stand up with them. So, church, before we pray for him, I want you to take a look, good look. Yeah, Mikey, you got to stand up in place for your dad, buddy. Sorry, man. Take a good look around. These are your residents. Now, listen. The residency program, they're being accepted into, you know, into, into community. Now listen, it's not just myself or the other elders developing these men and leading these men. It's really our whole church body. So all of these folks are going to find their place into a missional community. That missional community needs to come around them, help get them acclimated to Sacred City, help them uh, jump into this program with both feet. Um, as I myself was a church plant resident in Omaha, I know how difficult it is to move to a new city that you don't know anything about, especially what's going on with the Quad Cities. I, I don't really know, honestly, right now. It feels like we're somewhere in, in the third or fourth plague. Um, <laughs> we, had, you know, we had polar vortexes this winter. We've had floods this spring. Now we've been invaded by gnats. I, I, I'm looking for frogs next. So I apologize, right? Now, I also know how difficult it is for your spouse, right? My wife, we got dropped in, didn't know anybody, didn't have any friends, didn't know which grocery store was the cheapest and which one had the the right almond butter or whatever the heck it is you're looking for. So people in missional communities come around these families, help them to get acclimated to the Quad Cities, help them find the few good restaurants that we've got, the few good coffee shops that we've got, help help them find that, all right? So we're, we're thankful for you guys moving here and joining us. And Alex, you've been here from the get-go. So thank you for sticking with us. We're glad. And uh, we're going to pray for them now and, and, and uh, get this process started. I'll just let you know, the first couple months is going to be acclimation, not too intense, helping them learn what it feels like uh, to be in community and be residents. And so uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll hit, the, hit the ground running, really, in August. Let me pray. Father, This morning is just so much evidence that you are at work here at our church, and we don't take that for granted at all. So many times in our spiritual life, we look at the trees or the plants, and it feels like they're fruitless, and it's very difficult to follow you. But in days like today and mornings like this morning, we get to see fruit on the vine, evidence that your spirit is indeed at work here in our church, and we just want to take a moment and thank you for it. And I thank you for each of these men, how they've prayed, they've sought um, wise counsel, they've applied, they've focused their heart and mind, and they feel called to pastoral ministry. And we pray that you would um, give them the strength that they need, that you would develop the gifts in them that are needed, you would help them acclimate to the church body here, that you would meet them here in this process that we can't make them into anything. We can help guide them, but it is you and your spirit that calls a man and it is you and your spirit that ultimately equips a man for gospel ministry. And we want to submit them before you this day and ask your blessing upon it. 
give the elders wisdom, give their missional community leaders wisdom, uh, give the body uh, heartfelt, hospitable um, attitudes to welcome them. And we just, uh, we ask your blessing on them. Um, In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you. All right. We've officially clapped more than any day in our church's history, I think. And now I'm preaching, so all clapping stops. So, no. All right. Now I'm just playing. Uh, Guys, we are in, we are six weeks deep now in this sermon series we're calling A Church for the City, learning what it means as Christians to live in the city and before the city. And we've talked about some things that are necessary to make that happen. We need to get connected to God. We need to get connected to one another and cross lines, um, socioeconomic lines, racial lines, any lines that separate. We want to cross those lines to be able to make friends, make relationships, make disciples. And we want to also be about social justice and working for the good of our city and um, you know, alleviating poverty and bringing healing where hurt, hurtings happen. All of those things. Now today, what I want to do, and we've kind of been highlighting it through a video every week, is I want to see how the gospel informs our work. Okay, now here's what I know about most of you. You spend a third of your life sleeping. We're not going to talk about that today. You spend another third of your life working. Whatever career, whether it's a homemaker or whether you're an engineer, whatever it is, you spend approximately a third of your life working. Now, we should ask ourselves, the gospel and being a Christian should influence all of our life, right? Not just the, the third of our free time that we have left over. So the, the third of our life that we spend working, how does the gospel of Jesus Christ inform that, impact that, change that? Well, I'm going to show us three things today about our work. One, how the gospel changes our attitude in regards to our work, how the gospel changes our relationship to our work, and then lastly, the gospel changes the way that we do our work. And I'm going to address all of these from Genesis 1 and 2. Now listen, Genesis 1 and 2 is pregnant with quadruplets, okay? It's got a lot of meaning, a lot of power there. I'm, not, I'm gonna be able to just like scratch the surface this morning. I've preached verse by verse through it in our book of Genesis. If you want more information, you're gonna go there. All I'm doing is looking at Genesis 1 and 2 and we're pulling out what it's saying about work, okay? So we're gonna move quickly, really quickly this morning, all right? Can you go with me? All right, good, let's do this. First, we're gonna look at what the gospel has to say about our attitude in regards to our work. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see the first worker. And who was the first worker? God himself. That's right. Genesis 1, 26 said this, God, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, said to one another, let us make man into our image. In the beginning, God is the original worker. God is the one who made everything. He created Space and time, he created matter and spirit. He created the heavens and the earth. You know what that tells us about work? Work is good. Work is not simply a curse to be avoided. 
nor is work a necessary evil for us just to get a paycheck and support our families and give to the work of God in the church. Work is a blessing. Every parent should have amened right there. You totally missed it. Work is a blessing. Okay, there we go. All right. I know, but we're working too, so we might not feel that way. Listen, when God rolls up his sleeves, puts his coveralls on, gets his coffee, and goes out and gets his hands dirty in the dust of the ground to create mankind, God himself is dignifying manual labor. He's dignifying work itself. It is good. Now, is that your attitude about work? No? Then it needs a gospel adjustment. Work is not something just to be avoided. Work is not something just to, just to, just to suck it up and just, it's only 40 years, right? <laughs> 40 years, right? You put Florida on your, in your little cubicle, a picture of Florida, and you just hold on for 40 years, <laughs> right? No. And when we look at the way God worked, we learn a few things about doing good work from the way that God worked. First, we see in creation, God brings order out of chaos, right? Into the darkness, he brings light, right? Out of the formless void of the earth, he created all of the laws that govern the sciences. God brought order to chaos. That's the first thing that he did. Second, God brought fruitfulness where there was fruitlessness. So God creates every living thing to bear fruit and multiply, to fill the earth through reproduction. And third, God's work was primarily, listen, benevolent and not selfish. God was not in heaven going, I'm really bored and I need someone to tell me how good I am. So I'm gonna create humans to go to me. No, 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 no. God was like a parent, right? God was like a parent who out of his own fruitfulness, out of his own richness, out of his own blessing, he wanted to create others to be a blessing too, right? Parents, don't have babies because you want them to love you and worship you, right? Create babies because you want someone to love and to someone to bless, right? God worked because he wanted to do good and he wanted to bless others. He didn't work because he wanted necessarily to get something out of it. And lastly, we see that God's work was consistent but not constant, there was a rhythm to God's work. God's work went six on, one off. He worked for six days and then he rested, and my son says it like this, he rested and enjoyed the sun on the seventh. Work wasn't everything. Rest was also important. Now, from these observations, we learn that work is not a curse to be avoided, it's good. And nor is it a God to be worshipped seven days a week. 
Work is a good gift from a good God to be done in a way that brings glory to God, the creator. Right? 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Everything your hand finds to do, do it all for the glory of God. And that brings me to my second point. The gospel, so that's our attitude in regards to work. It's not a curse to be avoided, nor is it a God to be worshiped. If you're in our, in our society right now, this is the two main problems. Either you're avoiding work at all costs and you're lazy and you're therefore not prospering and you're not being successful. Or oftentimes we fall off the horse on the other side and we worship work and work tells us everything about us. So how does the gospel change our relationship to our work? Well, in Genesis 1, we learn that human beings are created imago Dei is the Latin term. It means in the image of God. This means many things, but the two I want to draw our attention to this morning is one, that our identity, that's our, where we get our value and our worth. Listen, our identity precedes anything we could do, any, any work we could do, anything that we could accomplish. We were not created to create our own identity. Please hear me on that. We were not created to go out in the field and build an identity. We were given an identity in relationship to God. God tells us who we are, and now we were meant to go express that identity out into the world. We were not meant to go out into the world and build a name for ourselves to create an identity. We were not meant to do that, to go out there and figure out who you are by accomplishing a lot through your career or through your education or through whatever accomplishments you want to accomplish. We were given an identity through sheer grace. We are made in the image of God. We are his children. We are loved by God who created all things. The second thing we should notice is that right after of affirming our identity, you're made in the image of God. You have an inherent dignity, value, and worth. You're loved no matter what you produce, no matter what you ever do, whether you're gonna be an Olympic champion someday or whether you're gonna be a janitor for the rest of your life. It doesn't matter. You're loved. You have dignity, value, and worth. But right after that affirmation, God gives the first humans work to do. And their work mirrors the work that God has already done in creation. They were to create order out of chaos. Here's a field. Make it into a garden, right? Make it into a plant. Here's the raw materials for civilization. Build it. Here's some, you know, here's basically the, the beginning of technology. Create tools, create things to make the world a better place. They were to be fruitful and multiply and start a family and start human civilization. They were to seek the good of the creation and make it better. And they were to work and rest like God did in the rhythm of God. Work six days, rest and enjoy creation and the creator on the seventh. Now what that means for us is for us to have a right relationship to our work 
it has to connect back to those two things. First, we have to learn how to work from our identity and not for it. And secondly, our work needs to reflect God's work. Let's take a look at each of these points in a little more detail. One, we are to work from our identity and not for it. Work is something we do. It isn't meant to be the thing that determines who we are. God determines who we are. But what we see in Genesis was the first humans, they turned away from God, they disobeyed him, and when they did that, their relationship to everything got distorted. And specifically today, I'm gonna look at their relationship with their work got distorted. Their work was now cursed. Her womb was cursed. The, his work, the field, was cursed. Her relationships broken, both their relationships broken. What did they do? They, the first humans, they end up hiding from God and then they started to use their work to build an identity apart from God. And as you chase it, tra trace it out through the book of Genesis, just a few chapters later, we get this thing called the Tower of Babel. And the Tower of Babel where it was mankind came together and they literally said, let us build something awesome and tell ourselves how awesome we are. Now, we've been doing that since Babel, right? Whether it's an iPhone or a new computer or a new car or whatever it is, we build things and then we basically worship our own ingenuity, our own intellect, our own power. These folks began to worship their work. We still do this today. As an American, how do you know you're good? How do you know that you have dignity, value, and worth? Here's how you know. What have you produced lately? We've been trained to look at our accomplishments to determine our worth. Madonna said this in Vanity Fair. I've shared this several times, but it's been a while, so I thought I'd resurrect it. Quote, she said, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. She says, I push past one spell of it and I discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, she says, my drive in life from this horrible fear of being mediocre and that's always pushing me, pushing me because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm still somebody. She says, my struggle has never ended and it probably never will. What's, I mean, what is she, 90 right now? What's driving her? What's driving her to still produce albums, to still get on stage and perform? 
Every couple years, she realizes I'm mediocre again. I'm normal again. I have to produce something to find my value. I have to get a new album. I have to get on stage. I have to have another surgery. I have to reinvent myself. Now, that's a very explicit illustration. But how many of us live our lives under the same slavery? The next project, the next promotion the next stage in our child's development. Now here's one way that you can put your finger on the pulse of your own spiritual life and say, am I worshiping my work? Am I finding my identity through my work? How do you know if you're using work to build an identity? Here it is. When you are worshiping work, you find it really hard to rest and enjoy creation and enjoy God and enjoy relationships. Rest is evidence that I trust God to be God and I'm not trying to be God. This is why God built it into our system that we're not like him, that he, he doesn't need to sleep, right? Every night we got to put our head in our pillow and go, I hope you got this because I don't and I'm going to lose consciousness and I pray that my heart keeps beating when that happens, right? And I pray that the business doesn't fall apart, and, right? And all the things out in the world that you're managing everything, every night is a reminder I'm not God and I have to go to sleep and dress, rest in his sovereignty. And every Sabbath is meant to be the same. Take my hands off and I stop working in my career. Now, it doesn't mean I just sit and watch Netflix every day. Worship, we worship, we come together, we worship. We enjoy God's creation. Rest is where I acknowledge that I'm a creature and not the creator. Do you notice, I love this. God is the only one who gets his to-do list done every day. It says, he finished the work of creation and then rested. I meet so many people that go, as soon as I'm done, I'm gonna rest. They call that death. <laughs> That's when you're done, brother, because your work is never done. There's always more things to sell. There's always more things to do, right? The grass always needs cut right now, right? Then you got to bail it, right? <laughs> work is never finished. I, last year, I built my parents' a home for them to retire in, and it was great, you know, handing the keys over, and they get the house, and the house is finished, and they move in, and dad hasn't quit working since he took the keys. Why? You get a house, what do you get? You get 10 more projects, right? You got to mow, you got to fix, you got to repair, you got to expand, you got to do this. You're constantly working. Work is never done. Only God gets his to-do list done every day. Now, rest is how we enjoy God. Rest is how we fight the temptation to make our work into an idol. Listen, people who worship their work can rarely rest well. 
And one of the saddest realities about those who worship their work, listen to this, is they by their life are preaching a false gospel to the world. A gospel that says your work will save you from a meaningless life. I know many parents who claim Christianity and yet the core message they teach their children is your work will save you from a meaningless life. So study hard, go to the right schools, work hard, be on the right teams. Your work will save you from a meaningless life and that's a false gospel that will bring destruction to their soul. And the, we preach this gospel to our kids and our coworkers and our neighbors and our spouses. And we say, if you work like me, you can be successful like me. Many do it with a veneer of Christian lingo over the top of it, causing many people to push away from Christianity and say, oh, if it's that, then I don't want anything to do with it. Listen, guys, the way we work, our relationship to our work tells a story. Can I ask you, what story are you telling through your relationship with work? Are you telling the story that work is bad and should be avoided at all cost? It's a false gospel. Or are you telling the story that hard work is God and it will save you? That's a false gospel. Both of these must be rejected and replaced with the true gospel if we're going to glorify God and do good work in our city. Now, I'm closing-ish. <laughs> work, here's the gospel when it, as it relates to our work. Work is a good thing that's gone bad. Our work has been cursed in such a way that it is really hard, right? And so it's, we don't just jump up every day and want to go to work a lot of times. It's hard to enjoy. And secondly, it's been cursed in such a way that we are constantly tempted to make it into an idol. A false savior that will save us from our greatest fears. Our fear of being alone, our fear of not being successful, our fear of uh, not having enough or, or not having security. Work becomes the God that give, will, will give us what we, that will give us the answers to the things that we fear. Now listen, I used to hate vacations. Because when I stopped working for a few days, I would get these nagging thoughts. What have you accomplished with your life? Shouldn't you be more successful by now? Shouldn't you be more well-off financially? Look at your bank account. Didn't you think you were going to have a whole lot more by the time you turned 30 or 35 or 40? Like, who are you? See, I would be unsettled. The, the kids are having a good time. Amanda's having a good time. And I'm unsettled. I got to go do something. I want to go do something while I'm on vacation. I couldn't rest. I would itch to get back to work. I can't wait to get back to work. Why? Because work told me who I was. I was believing a false gospel that was keeping me enslaved to working for my identity and not from it. 
But when I believe the real gospel, the true gospel, here's the good news of Jesus. Oh, what good news. Jesus on the cross is hanging there, bleeding and dying for us. And Jesus, the only human being in human history that could actually say the words of God and mean it, it is finished. Right? We finish a project, but we know it's not finished. There's more school to do. There's more things. Jesus on the cross said our salvation is finished. There's nothing left for us to do. There's no loose ends that need to be tied up. There's nothing to add to the salvation to-do list. Jesus accomplished it all by living the life that we failed to live and dying the death that we deserve and pleasing the Father on our behalf. Jesus stood in the gap and took our punishment. Jesus offers us by faith his own righteousness. So now all that's left for us to do is receive by faith the work that he's already done. Jesus says it is finished. Now, what does that mean? Because Jesus finished the work of salvation for me and for you, that gives us a deep soul rest. I I get rest from the work that's under our work, the work of proving our own identity. When I believe the gospel that Jesus has already earned for me everything I need for life and godliness, that changes my relationship to my work radically. Work doesn't tell me who I am anymore. I can upset my boss. I can disappoint the coaches. I, I, I'm not, I don't find my identity in, in my work any longer. God tells me who I am, and now I have a freedom to rest and relax when I need to rest and relax and go out there and work hard when I need to work hard. Work is just what I do. It's not who I am anymore. So when we believe the gospel, work gets put back in its proper place. Now, the last thing I want to share, people often ask me, well, what is good work? Because clearly because of the curse, there are some things that are bad. There are some industries that Christians should avoid. I'll let you figure that out. There's some things that we shouldn't do, but there's some things that are good. And here it is. The most meaningful work is always going to connect back to God's work in creation in some way. Listen, meaningful work is bringing order out of chaos. Moms think toy room. (laughs) Right? You do it every day. You do it multiple times a day. It's good work. Right? Think cutting hair. Order out of chaos. Think mowing grass, order out of chaos. Think accounting, order out of chaos. Banking, order out of chaos. Go on and on and on. Secondly, fruitfulness out of fruitlessness. Taking something that's fruitless and giving it new life and making it fruitful. Parenting, financial planning, healthcare, fitness, things that are broken and fixing them. Stewardship, not selfishness. That our work isn't about building an identity. It isn't about us and our bank account. Work is about blessing the world. Think creation care. Think human flourishing. It's more than making making money. And lastly, our work, if it's going to be godly, if it's going to have meaning, it's going to connect back to God, our work has to be consistent and not constant. 
We must have the rhythm of work and rest. We must worship God by stopping our work and reminding ourselves, I'm not finding my identity in this work. I'm pushing back away from it. And some of you, if you're like me, that's gonna be harder work than real work, right? It's easy for me to dig a ditch. There's something wrong with me that I enjoy that. And I enjoy it even more if I can do it faster than you. All right? It's harder work for me to go take a walk, for me to enjoy my kids, enjoy my family, enjoy my friendships. That's harder work. It's the work of rest. That's why in Hebrews, one of the reasons why in Hebrews, the writer says, strive, work hard to enter God's rest. This was a modern miracle right now. I feel pretty much done. Listen, the answer here, we all, have, we all are off somewhere in our work. We need an attitude change. We need to change our relationship to our work. And many of us need to wake up in the morning and remind ourselves how our work that we're doing today connects back to God. And listen, if you find yourself in a meaningless career, and it might be hard, you might need to talk to your mission community, talk to an elder about it. You need to figure out how your work creates connects back to the work of God because that's how you find meaning in a career that maybe seems meaningless. How are you bringing value? How are you bringing order out of chaos? How are you bringing fruitfulness? How are you blessing the world, right? All of these are ways for your work to have deeper meaning and value. And we, every week we come to the Lord's Supper and it's easy this week when we come and listen, this is what we're doing. When we take the Lord's Supper, the body and the, bre the bread, and the, which represents the body and the wine, which represents the blood, and we celebrate, we participate in the finished work of Jesus this morning. You, you might feel far from God. You might feel disconnected from God. Listen, there's nothing for you to do to fix that. But reach out your open hands of faith and receive it. Jesus has done all the work. You put your faith in him and let him lead you. Father, I thank you for all the evidences of grace this morning. I thank you for how you speak to us through your word. And I pray that you would bring clarity to this topic for us. You would empower us. You would bring repentance. You would give grace. Help us work with our eyes on the gospel. Help us work in a way that brings honor and glory to you. And Father, we come with empty hands this morning to receive the work that you've done for us. Would you remind us? Would you renew the covenant that you have with us? We've walked away from it. Would you restore us to right relationship with you and with each other and with our work? Would you do all this for your glory? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.